Hi, everybody. I'm Mike Hancock, uh, the chairman of the Circle of Excellence Group. And, you know, we've been in the midst of COVID now for the past 18 months uh, around the world. And it's, it's done everything from divide families to keep people apart, to make people have very, very different opinions about what people should do about it. So um, in our global intelligence updates that we do, I wanted to invite uh, Angela Norman, who's both a client of ours and a good friend being uh, we've known Angela for, I think, eight years this year, and uh, she's been to places like Egypt and Cambodia with us, and, and so we know Angela very, very well, but most people don't know because Angela lives very much off the grid, does a lot of training these days, and uh, a lot of helping people in local communities, that her background as a scientist, she's a lab rat and um, a virologist, in fact, so, uh, and a gene specialist. So um, Angela's graciously uh, accepted the challenge today to try and sort out what's actually going on and what's not and giving us a perspective from her science background as well. So over to you, Angela, and welcome. Oh, thanks, Mike, and uh, hello, everybody. That's a great introduction. Yes, I'm uh, more of a spiritual scientific nature lover these days. Um, I do have a honours degree in genetics and a master's degree in path pathological studies um, specialising in virology. And I spent eight years in a diagnostic lab and 20 years selling diagnostic equipment to the diagnostic labs around the world. So I've had a lot of experience in this area. So hence the mask, I'm going to tonight unveil some of the mysteries behind viruses and how we test for them and everything else and hopefully give you a different perspective of, you know, what could be happening in the world. So I'm going to share my screen with you now. Uh, where did it go? No, you have to, uh, if you're on Zoom, you have to go down to your PowerPoint click it off and click it back on. It's one of those weird things ah. about Zoom that you have to do. Okay. By the way, I was saying to Angela that uh, I liked her flag at the back. She explained what it was, uh, but uh, when I saw her with a mask and a hoodie and that flag, I was, uh, I was waiting for anything in this day and age. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to start the call. So if you can put this up in, in the chat, do you think viruses are more friends than foes? So just put in the chat whether you think it's more friends or foe, and it'd be just interesting to see what response we get. So while you're deciding, I'm going to start introducing you. Why is my slides not moving? My slides aren't moving. Oh, there we go. It's on the click. Okay, so I'm going to introduce you to the viruses. So viruses, like nature, comes in many shapes and sizes, with polio being one of the smallest viruses, and smallpox, two viruses you hear, being one of the largest. Um, smallpox is quite interesting because it's a little bit more complex than the rest of them. And... Um, Recently, just in the last 10 years, we've discovered giant viruses in Siberia. They're almost as big as a bacterium. They have a genetics that's very similar to a eukaryotic cell. 
and they also have their own virus, which is a virion, and they call and the uh, Russians called it Sputnik. So I thought that was just to give you an introduction. So really, to understand understanding viruses, we've got to ask: Well, where did they originate? Well, both viruses and bacteria originated on our planet around 3.5 billion years ago when it was just a soup and all life on this planet developed from the microbial world. So first, well, it's like a chicken and egg between the virus and the bacteria, which came first, because you could say two viruses, because they're simpler, came together to form the bacteria, or you could say um, the bacteria formed and then viruses are just buds of DNA and structure of the bacteria, which bacteria do and our cells do and they're called exomes um, but there's actually another theory and that theory is that um, the life could have been seeded from space because in meteorite they've actually found fossilized bacteria so we really don't know and viruses have been a mystery up until uh, up until fairly recently and uh, one of the amazing things about viruses is that they actually interact with every form of life on this planet. So absolutely every form of life has a virus that's associated with it. And then the next question is like, are viruses um, alive? Well, I'm introducing um, Ding and Yang because the world's become too polarized and the debate on science has become too polarized where actually the truth is there's a bit of everything in it. Now, in nature, simplicity, in the simplicity, life is just genes. And from the genetic material becomes the building blocks of life. But humans have complicated it because we've got this list of all things that make something alive. And according to our definition of what is alive, a virus isn't. Um, because we don't know so much about them. So again, it's just one of these strange things. But if we looked at our world in carbon distribution, it gives us a different view. Uh, plants are over 82% of all carbon, bacteria 13%, fungi 2.2%. And then we go into this small tiny box down here and we look at the animal kingdom and the Viruses are 0.04 and humans only 0.01%. So because we can't see them, doesn't mean to say they're not there, but they're actually there in four times as much as our human, human mass on the planet. There's four times more of them. Um, scientists have arranged just in the mammalian world that there are over 320,000 different viruses of which we've only in the last 70 years identified 4,000. So there is still an unseen, unknown world to explore. So considering we know so little about them, what do we know that they actually do? Well, if you go back that they were part of life when life on earth began, they were part of taking raw materials and building building them into amino acids and building proteins. So they're both part of the life cycle of development, 
but also on decline because the viruses that we've come across and identified are those that are associated with the decline of life at the end of life when death and illness and viruses come, come together. But it's actually really a little bit more mysterious because a virus is literally a bit of DNA, a, bit of DNA, a protein coat, and some of them have a lipid membrane, which they think it's got from the host cell. And from that, they produce proteins. Um, just to put it in context with uh, the Human Genome Project, we started the Human Genome Project and the Human Genome Project decoded only 10% of our, our human genome. So 90% was classified as junk or nonsense DNA. In that 10%, we found 22,000 genes. But our human body is made up of 200,000 genes. Now you compare our genome of 22,000 to a flea that's got 30,000 genes. Where do all our other proteins come from? And all the other proteins that make us as human come from the bacterial biome, which we're only just beginning to understand with the uh, gut health and the gut biome. But we've also got a virology biome in our body as well. So for every human cell, there are 10 bacteria cells. So there's about 10 trillion bacterial cells in our body. And there's probably a hundredfold or tenfold more viruses in our body. All of these make us one very unique ecosystem. So I'm going to look at viruses in evolution. And again, if we, if we look to nature, we look to the rise of the reptiles after a great extinction, viruses emerged at the same time. At the last great extinction, when mammals arrived, viruses came along. And it's actually a retrovirus protein that enabled our placenta to form. So before the last extinction, we all laid eggs like all the other animals. It was a symbiotic relationship with a virus that enabled the development in the evolution of the placenta and live birth. It's a really important because we've got a lot of viruses emerging at the moment and we're in the sixth extinction event of the planet, as we know. So this is where I'm bringing up, it's not all about death and decay, it's also about developing for the next wave of evolution. So I'm gonna show you some cool pictures. Um, these are from uh, my days as the lab rat. Um, I was in virus isolation prior to PCR. So this is, this is some of the techniques that we look to identify a known virus. So the pretty pink cell, that's actually herpes growing in a tissue culture. And the gaps is where the herpes has exploded the cell and the dark pink are expanding cells that are filling up with virus. And um, herpes is one of the most interesting and uh, fun viruses for me because that was part of my thesis because I like the fact that they look like fried eggs under an electron microscope. You can see polio, rotavirus and smallpox are completely different. Now the top other picture is when you first look, this is all the cell debris. 
So when you're a lab rat looking down a vine, you're trying to find these minuscule objects which are very geometric in shape compared to um, you know, body matter and debris and waste material, which is one of the questions about are viruses alive? Are they exomes? Are they just pockets, packets of um, broken down cells? Um, personally, I say no, because they're too genomically and too, too ge geometrically different to what waste parts of the cell look like. Now, the other key technique before PCR, we had um, ELISAs, and this is where I use this technique to differentiate, uh, differ between oral and gentle herpes and shingles using specific antibodies. Now, I've brought this up because how antibodies are created for these tests is very similar to how the COVID vaccine is working. Um, and to, to generate all these diagnostic tests, animals are inoculated with antigens uh, to produce the antibodies. And then we bleed them and purify them to actually put them in the plates to uh, be able to identify a virus in a, in a, snow, in a, in a nasal sample. Um, pretty similar to what the COVID vaccine is doing. It's forcing your body to produce, you know, um, to produce an antigen, so your body produces antibodies. So it's it's very similar. But PCR. Um, oh, before I go on to PCR, so when we come to COVID, COVID is a new disease, and this is where all the questions and the conspiracy theories and all the arguments really fall apart because there's one key part that hasn't been done. Because um, we didn't know about viruses until 1897. We couldn't start looking for them under the microscope until the electron microscope was developed in the 1930s. So back when we had bacteria and we could see them, the germ theory was the main scientific argument at the time that won. But there was a terrain theory that actually diseases are caused by the environment, not necessarily an infectious agent. And this is where, you know, the yin and yang comes in because it's a bit of both. Um, you just look at pollution and poisons and how they cause disease symptoms versus the germ theory. And this is what has, uh, with the, all the um, official Information Act requests has not been confirmed. There has not been a confirmation that I'm aware of in the world where they have isolated, purified, and proven COVID to be the infectious agent under Cox postulate, which was developed in the 1900s, where really you take somebody that's sick with an unknown infection, you look at it under the microscope, you try to grow it, so it could be in a plate for bacteria and tissue for uh, viruses. You then look to isolate and purify it. You, you inoculate another animal with it. That animal should have the same symptoms. Then again, you analyze and you prove that it's actually the same organism that you identified and isolated and purified in the original sample. Um, this hasn't been done. Everything when it comes to science has come from a computer simulated or sent code of a fragment of the COVID virus. Um, the original nasal swab had lots of fragments and this was just one of the fragments that they identified 
as the spike protein. And it's from that fragment DNA that they've built the PCR test. So if we look at PCR, PCR is in the most simplest terms, um, tuning your metal detector to a certain pitch to try and find something very, very specific. And it's so specific. You have, you have primers that will identify that pen, but they don't identify that pen. They will only identify that pen. But what it cannot tell you if, is, is that pen found in a pencil case or is that pen found in somebody's briefcase? They cannot tell you if that pen is alive or if that pen is dead. They can only tell you that what looks like a pen is there. So with PCR, there's been a lot of talk about how accurate these tests are. And uh, the analytical specificity, i.e. looking for the pen, is exceptionally good. But the diagnostic specificity, that is something different. Because remember, there was those 320,000 viruses, of which we know 4,000. Remember that nasal swab had bacterial cells, viral cells, human cells. We don't know how specific that test is because all the research to say that that bit of protein can only, or that, not even the protein, that bit of code can only be found in COVID has not been completed. It cannot be completed at warp speed. It normally takes minimum of five years to bring a complete diagnostic test to the market. And I used to work for Abbott Diagnostics, one of the leading companies in bringing these tests to market and one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies. And that is the length of time it takes. It cannot be done in warp speed because you don't know what you don't know. And even recently, the WHO has said that the PCR test cannot be used for a diagnostic purpose. It can only tell you that fragment is there. It cannot tell you if that person's sick, well, or recovered. It can't give you any information. And the more cycle times, because it's, um, it's like every time you do a cycle, you double what was there. So if you start off with one, so after 30 cycles, you've got over 30 million copies. It's the analogy of, uh, do I give you a penny or do, you, do I give you a uh, hundred, you know, $10,000? It's that compound, is that it compounds and it's just not accurate enough. So when we're looking for new viruses, we really are looking for a needle in the haystack. Because um, it's not just looking for the, because we're looking for that DNA, that bit of um, genetic material, that RNA. We don't know if, if it's the vaccine because you've seen so many vaccinated people are now testing positive, but it's still the same code as the code in the virus. The test can't distinguish between the code, whether it's in the virus or whether it's the vaccine. And in our human genome, I said, there's over 100,000 fragments of retrovirus in our junk DNA. We have um, a, an enzyme that's called reverse transcriptase, which takes your RNA, turns it into 
uh, chromosomal DNA and incorporates it into your DNA. And our DNA is littered with viral fragments. So we don't know if the test is picking this up. Again, because it's too soon, we're using it as if it's fact, but there are so many unknowns, we don't actually know. Um, and this is something that I've seen. When I did my research, I think I was the last year where my research was completely unfunded by anybody. I begged and borrowed antibodies. Um, during my times selling equipment, I've come across so, so many studies that have been paid for by the big companies that never get published because it's quite soon that early on that that study is not going to give the company the payout that it wants to pay for the research. So it pulls the research. When I was doing my genetic study, I was wanting to look at, um, at the nonsense DNA because I discovered that any, any gene that's associated with life, and I was looking at energy production in animals, that was highly conserved. It never changed. Um, but the amount of the variation in the junk DNA was huge. And I wanted to study that, but I was told there's no funding for it because there's no money to make, be made. And in the last 20 years, uh, the definition of the infectious disease has changed. Um, pandemic has changed from deaths to cases. Um, herd immunity has changed from vaccine and natural immunity to just vaccine immunity. And I have never seen a time where so many doctors and scientists are silenced. There is one narrative and one narrative allowed. And everybody who has a different viewpoint is literally silenced, silenced by politi politics, poli you know, politicians and the mainstream media. So, and I just hear so many errors in that what's been told to us. Um, and I don't think we can trust the science because it, there, there are other agendas. So this is what you wanted to talk about really, um, COVID. So I like this picture because with everything that's going on and all the misinformation, all the, you know, one source, one truth, all the different theories, all the, you know, it feels like our head's gone into the mill and has been spat out the other side. And if you don't have the background I have, it's like you don't know what's true or not. It's so confusing. So if you've got, if you don't have the basics, then your only choice is to believe what's been what you're being told. Um, the bat soup theory. There's one big problem with that is the bat was uh, 60 600k's away, um, and they haven't found the intermediate animal that jumped from the bat to humans because between that, that virus and the human one, there's about an 80% difference. So there's a chain that hasn't been followed. The lab leak theory, well, that's gained a lot more with Fauci and you can look into the patents because something that's natural can't be patent. And back in 2001, that's my, uh, no, I'll go on to, back in 2001, um, there was a, a blank coronavirus patent, pretty much. The 
part of the virus had been removed or the spike, spike protein, and it wasn't able to replicate very well. So literally, it was a shell for gene therapy or potential gene therapy, um, which meant that in the, in the lab, you can come up with a code on your computer. You could artificially made that code in the lab. You can insert that into the virus. And hey, presto, you've got a potential vector for gene, for gene therapy. Um, gene therapy is simply, if you've got a defective gene in your body, you're trying to correct the gene. So you're trying to correct the gene by giving the body a correct copy. And you're hoping that that copy will take by your body and it'll be reverse transcribed into your body. So your body starts making that protein naturally. Um, that has been very troublesome. And the first gene therapy was only approved in 2018. It didn't go the full way. Um, but what it did do, it did give us the lipid nanoparticle, which is used in the vaccine, because that was the only uh, particle out of 52 that actually didn't cause too much disease symptoms or allergic reactions. And it was the most tolerated by the human body, especially when you've got to give multiple doses. So the only real difference from my experience between gene therapy and the vaccine is that you're still trying to do the same thing in a way. But apart from the difference is you're actually getting your body to make a pathogenic protein and then to stimulate your body to produce antibodies against it, just like those lab animals in my earlier slide. Um, so it's too similar and it's too new technology. We don't know enough about this and we don't know how safe it is. And we literally don't know if that mRNA can be reverse transcribed into our, and insert into our gene, which is where some cancers caused by viruses um, occur because where the viral information inserts into our chromosome, it disrupts a gene and then that gene can cause cancer. So that's why some viruses cause cancer. So we've got an experimental virus. And this is the patent that I was talking about back in 2001 by the University of North Carolina, who work in conjunction with Wuhan in the viral enhancement research. That's been a big hot debate. So not only do we have an experimental vaccine, we have experimental treatments, which partly is what happened in the US with um, Redemisphere, which was a experimental treatment during the Ebola outbreak that was um, removed because it caused kidney, acute kidney failure, which meant the lungs filled up with water, which is what COVID lung, and that's what the US deemed the only treatment for their COVID patients. Um, and that's why a lot of them died from kidney. And in fact, in the original Ebola trial, 8% of the placebo group died from uh, acute kidney failure. And what's emerging right now is it's actually the protein, the spike protein, that's the toxin. So You've heard of mad cow's disease, you've heard of scrapies. These are all protein diseases that affect the brain and you can't diagnose them until the animal's dead and you look at the, at the brainstem. 
but it's emerging that not only is the spike protein toxic and the cause of the symptoms, but it also can cross the blood-brain barrier and it can also attack your epithelial layer. So that's hence attacking all your circulatory system. Um, you've now got, this is what we don't know, and it's still been investigated, that now you've got protein floating around, it attaches to the cell. Is that cell, which is you, now identified by the body as a foreign invader because now it's got a foreign protein but not the virus with it? Uh, these are things that we are still to discover. So variants. Variants simply is that the genetic code is slightly different from a reference virus or a reference code. Um, now, just having a different code doesn't change the protein because there's multiple codes that produce the same, use the same amino acids to produce the protein. And to just put that into perspective, this is tracking the evolution of measles. So in the 1960s, the vaccine was introduced and we're now seeing an, uh, an emergence of variants sort of 50 years later. We saw the same thing with antibiotics and multi-resistant bacteria. So it's not just measles, it's mumps. Um, mumps very stable, but recently we're seeing more variants emerge. So just to put into context, um, the top one is COVID after 18 months, and just look at that swarm of variants. Below is your flu. Now this is flu B, that's just one of the flus. This is another strain of flu, another strain of the flu, more strains and more strains of flu. And we're led to believe that suddenly when COVID struck, they all just disappeared miraculously. I'll leave you with that thought. So if we look at flu just briefly, because everybody's been comparing COVID with the flu, um, the red spike is the 2009 uh, influenza pandemic. Now that doesn't mean there's an increase in cases. It means when the pandemic hit, there was an increase in diagnostic testing. And we've seen this fold change again with COVID because during the 2009 flu pandemic, we were still only testing the sick. We weren't testing the asymptomatic, the people with no symptoms. We weren't testing people who just happened to be in the shop at the same time or within a couple of hours. So the amount of testing that's been done to find the few cases that we have is absolutely enormous. We literally are looking for that needle in the haystack. And we're finding it because we're doing so much testing. Um, on this one, I've just showed you Sweden. So this is the flu outbreak in 2009, and it shows a similar pattern to what Sweden saw. And I chose Sweden because they really didn't do any lockdowns and they tried to live with the virus from the beginning. Um, talking about lockdowns, these are a whole range of countries, UK, Sweden, Germany, the pattern is very similar because the pattern says more than the numbers. Um, no real change. So now we're in the real world. And yes, I'm in New Zealand and we're all sheeple and we're locked in our bubble. 
and our bubble's just been burst and we're in lockdown countrywide for 131 cases. Uh, we've, I think yesterday it was announced 108,000 tests were done to find 102 cases. So that was 0.000944% of all testing done was positive. That gives you a different perspective. It's there. Um, but if you look at Gibraltar, sorry about my spelling, I forgot to change it. They were doing very well with the outbreak. Vaccination, deaths went up. Same with Taiwan, doing very well managing the outbreak. Vaccination, deaths went up. We're seeing in um, Israel, between 80 and 90% of cases are now vaccinated. And we're seeing that the vaccine isn't actually working that well. And they're wanting the third booster because whatever protection it had, it's not giving the vaccinated any protection. Hence, the world is starting to move out. Um, this is data that was sent to Senate in the US, and this is 26 years worth of data versus six months of data of COVID. This is not good. You know, if this was any other drug at any other time, it would have been pulled off the market by now, but it's not. And it's just something the po politicians have generated this mountain of fear that they they can't step away from it. They can't they can't walk away from the fear that they've generated. And remember, it's changed from deaths to cases. It changed from deaths to cases because the deaths didn't happen. But the cases are big, scary numbers, especially when you do all those big, scary testing and testing everybody to see if somebody might just get a positive at 35 cycles. Um, this is total deaths in Europe. Um, these are the last five-year seasonal flu outbreaks. And right now, we're below average. So when we put COVID aside, um, we've seen and heard of a lot of emergence. We've had Zika, we've had Ebola, we've had all sorts of avian flu, pig flu, we've had um, bovine, we've had in New Zealand, we've had PSA. But for the germ theory, our, the way we're creating our food and husbandry, most of the viruses are coming from the animal world and jumping to humans. And it's because we're feeding, we're breeding chickens, pigs. Cows, kiwi fruit, it's a breeding ground for disease. When you do monocultural in, intensive culture, it's, it's like a feeding fest for a locust. And in our cities, we're so dirty, over-congested that we're seeing measles and thing outbreaks in our cities. So that all links into the germ theory of us passing bugs because of the close, dense proximity of animals and humans. But the terrain theory comes in too. The Zika was thought to have been such a problem because of all the bottle caps produced many, many breeding habitats for mosquitoes, which enabled the mosquito population to explode. We're having a chemical war on nature with herbicides, fungicides, um, Glycophosphate is an antibiotic. We're destroying the biome of our planet with our chemicals. And anything that's alive, if your life is put under threat, you adapt to survive. 
So, you know, the, the nature is adapting to survive our onslaught, our deforestation and this graph just shows you the complete emergence over the last 20 years of all these from the decimation that we've done in the last 30 years to our planet. And right now we've got a threat of biowarfare with these potential uh, enhanced viruses that have a yin and yang. They, yes, they could help us understand how virus mutate and evolve. But on the other hand, in the wrong hands, it's a disaster for biowarfare. So like nature, we're going to have to adapt or die. And um, it's becoming, at last, it's becoming clear that we're going to have to learn to live with what's happening. Um, so on a personal scale, I mean, that's eat healthily, eat organic, try to remove, um, have your vitamin C, your vitamin D, your magnesium, um, your, B, your B complexes, organic, fresh fruit, you know, try to avoid the mass sprayed crops. In our businesses, we're going to have to be adaptable. I don't know how many of you have a food industry. If you're in the food industry, you will know what HACCP is. Um, HACCP is the Hazards um, Assessment of Critical Control Points, which was designed when we went into space because you couldn't have your astronauts um, getting the shits in space and having to deal with it. You couldn't have your astronauts with the cold. So they had to come up with things to deal with infection. and in the simplicity of it, you're going from dirty to clean and clean to, your, you know, and this is something we may have to consider and start building plans. As countries start opening, HACCP's going to be important for our businesses. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all entrepreneurs here. And because of there's so much opportunity for us, because if we imagine that every product that's on the market at the moment needs to be redesigned for nature in mind. There are so many opportunities for new businesses, so many opportunities to create and choose better choices, to make our healthy land so we've got healthy products, healthy people and healthy businesses. So I put the challenge to you, get inventive, get creative, look at the products, see what you can do to use a more natural, a natural solution for our planet and for us so that we can actually emerge through this stronger and better than before. So I'll stop sharing now, shall I? That was my last slide, guys. Angela, thank you. That was just phenomenal, honestly. I think, you know, there's a lot of data in there and a lot of detail but i think what you've done is you've given some you've given some points of view from from your science background from your from your lab rat background um yeah you know colleen says here it takes courage to speak up these days and things like that and that's very very true and you know i think we're at a time in history where every single person has a choice and you know, um, if people choose to go the vaccine way and listen to everything that's coming out, that's fine. That's no problem. That's 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 the choice. Um, and I think what uh, what presentations like this do is it just gives people a, an opportunity to look at maybe some of the deeper stuff there. So I'm going to throw it over 
to any questions that anybody has. Um, uh, Colleen has asked if, if you'd be able to share the slides. So the question would be, if somebody connects with you directly, um, can you share these slides? And uh, so that would oh, be yeah. one question, then we'll hand it. She says yes, so no problem, Colleen. So you can just uh, talk to Angela on our Facebook group and get that organized. So let's see if anybody's got a question for Angela. Yes, Colleen. Um, what small differences can we make other than building healthy businesses? Uh, it, you know, when you're facing people that have planted a flag in the sand and are unwilling to even consider, they're too terrified, I think, to go back on their, um, on their positions. What do you think perhaps the one or two best little gems of information or arguments or scientific pieces because you've presented a lot of information but what what could be those yeah. one or two little sound bites that just can maybe put a little crack in the <laughs> in the wall i think one one of them is is don't uh, there's, there's no wrong or right here um everybody does things for the right reason, you know, for their, what is right, their risk, you know, they've assessed their risk and they're in fear. So when somebody's in fear, you, it's very hard to change, but just give them love um, and, and just encourage them that if they are feeling the side effects, just to, you know, eat healthily, take the vitamins um, and just research into some of the natural remedies uh, because trying to get some of the ivermectin or hydrochloroquine in, um, I think there's other treatments. There's a um, asthma treatment that helps with breathing. Um, I think another pulmonary doctor was looking at um, <coughs> sorry, 80 milligrams of um, steroids um, over a six-day period help to really reduce. So there are alternatives and just say, look, if you need help, I'm here to be helpful with you, you know, um, because I think that some of the harrowing stories that you hear that um, people who are getting adverse reactions are just being rejected by mainstream, um, the mainstream health. I think it was in New Zealand, um, Somebody had a heart attack and the, and the hospital wouldn't treat them unless he was vaccinated. And it's like, what? You know, this, you've got kids who are put healthy, you know, having these like spasms and twitches and being told that it's all in their head and it's psychologically and that there's stress. Um, actually, there was, oh, what's the, there's a guy who has a really good breathing technique. Um, he was being scientifically studied and the breathing technique is, is it Koch? Koch? Do you know who I'm talking about? Um, Mike? Wim, Wim, Wim Hof. Wim yeah, Hof, yeah. Jim Hof. Yeah. So his breathing technique, and it was shown to actually expel more CO2 from your lungs. Um, it changes your pH and they actually injected him with a toxin that mimicked all the symptoms of if you were having a real raging uh, poison or fever. And he actually controlled it with this breathing technique, which was to take a big breath into, into your abdomen, breathe into your lungs, 
breathe into your head and then let it go. And he said, do that 30 times a day. So, you know, whether that builds your immunity, builds your inner strength or somebody who's struggling, just getting them into that meditative breathing and stress because it is, it's a question that's on my mind with uh, the children that are getting Delta. Um, children are really susceptible to stress in the world. And stress does one thing, it kills your immune system. When you're stressed and you're low, you get hit by every cold that's going around, um, you know. So doing lots of things that are de-stressful, you know, so increasing the stress isn't gonna help decrease the stress, um, breathe and center and just get, get some fresh air. You can't get fresh air wearing one of these. You need fresh air. If you're wearing one of these, you're breathing stale air, day, you know, hours on end. This is not good for your body. As soon as you can take this off, yes, wear it where you have to, um, you know, it's like we have to wear it to go into the supermarket. I'll wear it in the supermarket. But as soon as I'm in my car, it's off. I am not wearing it in my car. I'm breathing fresh air coming into the window. You know, it's simple things, little things. Angela, I, I think we've got, some, we've, we've got some yeah, really good stuff there. And in the chat, uh, Robert's given a, a, um, a link to, to Vim Hoff. And, uh, you know, Colleen Joyce talked about uh, ivaproin, uh, sorry, invermectin as well, which is, um, which is something that's helped her family. And, you know, uh, I think we've got from what I know on this call, uh, you know, uh, at least four or five people have been through COVID, including Lani and myself. Luckily, my voice is okay this week. But, you know, you just got to rest. And, um, you know, we used echinacea and colloidal silver and that was, and a throat spray, and that was holistic throat spray. And, yeah, we didn't feel well for a few days, but I felt worse at times. Colleen said they've had it twice. I think we've had it twice as well. I think we had it very, very early on um, also. So I think what you've done today, though, is you've opened people's minds. And, and uh, I think it's testament to the number of people on the call and, and uh, uh, as well that, you know, it was a, a very good turnout. Great to see some new people here. Great to see from... Um, up north and Limpopo, LM and Linda and Michael, I guess, is there as well. So hi to you guys and uh, lovely to see you there. Um, any final questions before we bring today to a close? Not seeing any hands up. So just while I wait for any last minute hand to go up, uh, on next week's call, uh, you'll, you'll be working with me on next week's call. And I can't remember what I'm talking about next week. I have to look in the diary, but uh, you know, it'll always be good and we'll have a lot of fun. The week after that, we've got Leon Arts. He's from uh, London in the UK. And Leon's built uh, a business that basically feeds the planet. So it's, uh, it's really great. He's a great entrepreneur and a great social entrepreneur as well. So he's going to be talking about some of the aspects of his uh, journey. Um, so uh, Colleen, one question here. Does Vax shed spikes? Uh, potentially, if you think if you get a splinter in your finger, your body tries to get rid of it. Um, anything that's not supposed to be in your body, your body will either try to vent it through your lungs, through your skin. 
so it's not you it's not deemed as you so it will try to remove that protein now whether that protein is infectious and harmful to another person there's not enough science to actually say anything on that um it's yep. a potential and i think that's that's what i've learned from this call is that there's literally not enough science yet to make any sort of real decisions so we have to manage ourselves um, the best way we know how and we know our bodies probably better than our doctors do so um, thank you Angela for your time today we really appreciate it. it was a fantastic presentation thank you for your article you just put up Sahadra and thanks uh, thanks everybody for being on the call we'll see you next week with uh, with Mike all the best thanks guys